You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Historians Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine join the Post to discuss their new book, 400 Souls, an anthology that highlights pivotal figures and untold stories from the 400-year history of African Americans. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. 400 years, 90 writers, two editors, one book. 400 Souls, a community history of African America, 1619-2019, is a remarkable volume that tells the story of Black people in the United States from the perspectives of 90 writers who reflect the community's diversity of perspective and lived experience. And by doing so, 400 Souls fills in more of and adds context to or complexity to the American portrait. The two editors I mentioned are Professors Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine. Professor Kendi is the founding director of the, Bo- of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist, Anti-Racist Research, and he's the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Professor Blaine teaches history at the University of Pittsburgh and is an editor for the Post's Made by History section, and they join us now. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank so you. So, Professor, Professor Blaine, since you've got the top box, I'm going to start with you. This is a different kind of history book, right? It's a history book where some of the 90 writers aren't even historians. Collectively, who are the writers and why are their voices so important? Uh, so, we asked an array of writers to contribute to the volume. And as you point out, so many of them are not professional historians. We asked journalists to contribute. We asked philosophers to contribute. Uh, we asked creative writers to contribute as well as poets. Uh, and what we wanted to do was really grapple with 400 years of history and not, you know, we, we really didn't want it to feel like a typical uh, history book. Uh, and of course, asking 90 historians uh, would have, I think, uh, yeah. taken away from the, the the sort of you know tone that we were trying to set, which was bringing together a diverse community, which meant people coming to the history, writing about the history, from their own uh, you know experiences, but also from their unique trainings, whether in the field of journalism or in the field of law. And so uh, it was important for us to uh, create something new, something special, something original, and that meant bringing in writers from a wide array of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Professor Kennedy, Professor Blaine just talked about the fact that you have poets in the book and you write, quote, sometimes history is best captured by poets. Flesh that out some more. Well, if there's anything I've learned in my time writing history, that is that it's deeply complex, that it's a variegated story, that in many ways we have to imagine things that we don't have or speculate uh, on, on, on decisions that we don't have uh, specific evidence for, that we have to stretch the archive, especially when writing on, on peoples, particularly working class Americans and certainly working class black folks who haven't left an archive, who haven't left uh, speeches and, and, and necessarily written records. 
And so, you know, poets have the capacity to really show the depth and complexity and the imagination and the creativity, uh, you know, of humanity. And and so when we when that comes to bear on on history, you know, I think they were really able at the end of each section to really flesh out and and contextualize, you know, forty years. Mm -hmm. When I was in school, Professor Blaine, and we're we're going way back, like the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. Black history, um, the way we're talking about it today, just wasn't taught. Slavery was a chapter and not exactly told honestly. Um, the accomplishments of Black Americans were diminished if they were even acknowledged. So has anything changed since the 70s and 80s? And what needs to change? So I think some things have changed. Uh, you know, when you look at how history textbooks are written, we're certainly at a place where the textbooks that are produced today or even in the last 10 years, uh, I think are, are better than the ones that were uh, published maybe 20 years ago. That does not mean that we still don't have work to do. In fact, we have a lot of work to do, especially uh, I think in the last two or three years, we've been talking about textbooks in places, uh, states like Texas, for example, where there's still a debate about how you talk about the Civil War and how you talk about slavery. Uh, and you know, like you, I certainly, uh, you know, encountered textbooks that didn't really flesh out uh, the nuance and, you know, and, and, and even the trauma of, of the, the experience of slavery and, and oftentimes uh, glossed over it or, or perhaps had a, a little box to, uh, you know, focus on Martin Luther King Jr., but other than that, not really center uh, key historical figures. Uh, and so, a lot has changed, and part of that change is is directly tied, I think, to the work of uh, professional historians. You know, we've been working very hard uh, to excavate the history, uh, and in in order to help people better write about the history uh, in a way that reflects uh, the richness and the complexity and diversity of the Black experience, but but particularly in a way that centers Black agency, which is key. Uh, that Black voices appear, that Black ideas appear in these textbooks. Uh, still some work to do, uh, but I think we're making progress. And I think 400 Souls uh, is certainly the kind of text that would help us move forward in that direction. You know, what's interesting is that when people register to come to Washington Post Live events, we give them an opportunity to, uh, is there a question that you would like to ask? And what's interesting is that we got a lot of questions from people, uh, more than I think we anticipated asking about you know, teaching this in schools. And here's, here's a, a sample question. It says, how can schools from elementary to high schools do a better job in teaching the history of race in this country? Professor Kendi. Well, well first, I, I think that our schools have to recognize that we live in a multiracial, multicultural uh, nation and that we have to teach the cultures and the histories of, of many different peoples uh, from their perspectives. And, and so I think if, if schools start from that standpoint and then start looking for literature uh, that allows them to teach the history of Black folks and the history of, of other folks, I think they'll find that literature and they'll certainly find it in, in 400 Souls. And, and one of the things we were, very focused on on doing with this book is even though we have 80 writers each of whom wrote 
five years of, of African-American history, each of their pieces are quite short. <laughs> and and, right. and so they're really bite-sized. And that, that allows a, a teacher in high school and even middle school to assign that single essay and, and build a whole section around it, or certainly a whole class. And that's what I found so my journalism training started at the at the New York Daily News, where you have don't have a whole lot of space to explain complex uh, issues. And so it's a skill to be able to write that short and so powerfully. And this gives me an opportunity now to dive into the book and start with the very first chapter that was written by Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, who's the Pulitzer Prize winning creator of the Pulitzer Prize winning 1619 Project at the New York Times and really sets the, the tone with that opening essay. We all know about the Mayflower, which landed in Massachusetts in 1620, but most people, myself included, didn't know about the ship named the White Lion, which landed a year earlier in Virginia in 1619. And in writing about how each ship has been treated in our national consciousness, Hannah Jones writes, quote, when we are creating a shared history, what we remember is just a, just as revelatory as what we as what we forget. Four hundred souls is about revealing the forgotten um, or unknown un, or unheralded, isn't it, Professor Blaine? It is, uh, and and it's funny that you um, you know bring up uh, Nicole uh, Nicole's really remarkable essay uh, because. I was even reflecting on my own experience as someone who had taken all of these history courses. And I don't think the first time, I think the first time I heard about the white lion um, had to have been in college. So we're talking about at the moment that I'm pursuing a bachelor's in history uh, that I find out about the white lion. Uh, and, and I thought to myself, well, you know, what about the person who doesn't major in history? Uh, and I was of course, intentionally taking courses in African-American history, Africana studies. So I, encountered this kind of uh, narrative, but another student could have gone through four years of college, could have even gone on to pursue a master's, uh, who knows, maybe even a PhD, uh, and never encountered the story of the white line. And I think that was a, a moment of reflection, certainly a painful one. And what is so powerful, I think, about the 1619 Project is, as you point out, it gets us to focus uh, on this narrative that has been hidden Yet it's so crucial to shaping uh, the American story. And so what does it tell us that we don't know collectively, uh, or rather that we didn't know uh, about mm -hmm. the white lion uh, until uh, you know, the release of the 1619 Project? So it was important, I think, for us as editors, uh, you know, we were discussing who will write that first essay because that's the most important essay. And when the 1619 Project uh, was published, uh, we knew immediately that we had to reach out uh, to, to Nicole to ask her to write this piece because it, it truly, I think, connected so well uh, with the larger goals of 400 Souls. As she writes in that chapter, uh, and so while arriving just a year apart, one ship and its people have been immortalized, the other completely erased. Professor Kennedy, before I go to the, the, the ne my next question, which is to you, I want to clear something up. Is it 90 writers or is it 80 writers? So I would say 90 writers because I don't want the poets to, to, 
to to get on me and say that they're not righty. So we, we okay. We, <laughs> so we have basically you know eighty writers who are writing five years, and then ten poets, who who Got each it. of whom wrote a, wrote a poem in in the text. So yeah, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just look, we're a news organization. I want to get it right the first time. So here's what so here's another um um thing that comes up early in the book uh, obviously and it's about whiteness and the power of whiteness and they've been at the forefront of our current national conversation on race since the Black Lives Matter protests erupted again in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. But whiteness isn't just a concept, it's a legal construct. Uh, um, Ijeoma Oluo writes in her essay about the whipping of Hugh Davis, who was white. Um, what did, what did um, Hugh Davis do, <clears throat> excuse me, and how did the lashing of Davis establish whiteness, Professor Kendi? Sure, so as Ijeoma writes in her in her piece, Hugh Davis in 1630 was was punished for lying with with a black woman. And, and as she writes, it is a demonstration really for the first time in what became the United States that whiteness was projected legally and certainly socially as pure. And, and so the idea was that this white man uh, sort of uh, poisoned himself in a way by allowing himself to sleep with this unpure black woman. And, and the reason why that, that is crucial today is, is not just because, as, as Ijeoma writes, that she's, she's a biracial woman, and, but, but, there's, but because of the purity of whiteness, she can't be half white, right? You're, mm -hmm. um, and so as a result, she identifies as black, but also we have we have Americans today who, who who imagine that they're losing their nation because black folks, because Latinx folks, because other folks of color are arising in positions of power or even entering this country. In other words, the nation is should be conceived of, they imagine, as purely white and it's being defiled. And what's interesting, she writes, whiteness is a ledge you can only fall from. But she also makes this point. In 1630, when Hugh Davis was whipped, he's the white man who was punished for uh, lying with a black woman. But as she also writes, by 1640, when another white man was brought before Virginia law for impregnating a black woman, it was the black woman who was whipped while the white man was sentenced to church, ser to church service. Um, again, more more history, more complexity shown in not just the history of Black people in the United States, but the complexity of the history of the United States. You know, Professor Blaine, the book also recounts several revolts, slave revolts. There was the New York City Revolt of 1712, the Stono River Rebellion of 1739, and the Louisiana Rebellion of 1811. Herb Boyd writes in... Um, writes in the chapter on the 1712 revolt, quote, time and again, white racism produced black resistance. It is one of the longest running plot lines in, in African-American history. It has been and remains a self-perpetuating loop, is, doesn't it? Absolutely. 
Uh, and it's interesting because we were talking earlier about textbooks and the way that textbooks often uh, tell the the history of Black people in this country. And one of the things that has that we've seen in textbooks throughout the years uh, is the way that uh, some writers uh, frame slavery, uh, and 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 particularly the way that they uh, suggest that well, you know, enslaved people um, sort of figured out how to work within the system. And uh, in the end, yes, slavery was bad, but not as bad, you know, not quite as terrible because all of these things came out of this institution. And, and um, it's, it's, it's really important, I think, for people to understand uh, resistance, to understand that, ensla that enslaved people uh, certainly fought for their freedom, uh, that, that people were, were, were not simply going along with the system, even when it appeared that they were going along with the system. Uh, and, I, and you see that, I think, even in the instances you brought up, the Stoner Rebellion uh, and, and the plot uh, to overturn a system. Uh, and in fact, the Stoner Rebellion in particular is, is so, I think, critical because, as you point out, this is 1739. So this is before uh, the you know the the founding before the the official you know before the the U.S. Constitution before um, you know what we mark as the the beginning of the United States uh, and in those early years what is clear uh, is that enslaved people recognize uh, whether other people see their their humanity or not is not the point but they understand their humanity. And, and they have dignity and they have respect for themselves and recognize that any sort of life uh, devoid of freedom is simply not a life to have. And so they were constantly plotting and strategizing and resisting. And we see that throughout the course of history. You know, one of the things that still comes up to this day when um, the issue of slavery comes up, there's always some politician or someone um, someone white who says, slavery wasn't that bad. They were happy. They, they had homes. They, had, they were clothed. They had food. They were taken care of. What? Please give a succinct pushback to that nonsense. Whoever wants to go first. So slavery was maintained by awesome, persisting terror and violence. And, and that is why when you study these slave states, you have these multiple levels of, of military uh, control to ensure that the enslaved people continued uh, to work completely against their will, regular sort of violence, you know, and terror. And, and so you can't, to me, separate the institution of slavery from the institutionalization of terror and violence. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I would just quickly add to, you know, I mentioned humanity earlier. I think it's important for people to not forget that under the institution of slavery, that black people were viewed as property, as things, um, you know, like a table, like a chair. I mean, it's, it's so demeaning. And so when you talk about slavery, uh, you can't simply say, oh, individuals were fed, individuals were, were, were clothed. Uh, actually, people didn't even see them as humans. I mean, that is the crux of the matter. Uh, and, and so we can't tell this narrative in this flowery kind of way. Uh, it, it was a terrible institution uh, and absolutely needed to have been uh, dismantled. And Black people uh, fought to ensure that it was dismantled. 
You know, and that's the thing. The key thing you said there, Professor Blaine, that people should always remember is that during slavery, um, the slaves were not seen as human. They were seen at first and foremost as property. Um, let's talk about what's going on in the nation today, Professor Kendi. A common refrain in the aftermath of the insurrection, the January 6th insurrection, um, was this is not who we are and um, that this was un-American. And you wrote, quote, this was a bald-faced denial and, quote, nothing has held back America more than its denial. Talk more about that. Well, I think, you know, we, we spoke earlier about Nicole Anna Jones's opening piece in, in which she thought it was critical for the American people to not just learn about the Mayflower, which is considered the beginning of American freedom, but to also learn about the White Lion, which is the beginning of American slavery. And if you don't remember or are taught the White Lion, that means you possibly are not going to remember or be taught American slavery. So then in your mind, slavery is somehow outside of America. Then in your mind, white domestic terror is somehow outside of, of America. White supremacists engaging in coups are somehow outside of America. And so therefore, when you see what happened at the US Capitol, you're going to say, this is not who we are. But if you have learned about the white lion, if you have learned about the reconstruction era where there was countless attempts, unsuccessful and successful, to overthrow violently uh, democratically elected local governments throughout the South, then your response is, this is part of us. It's not all of America, but it's certainly part of America. And, and, and like with anything else, if we don't recognize it as part of us, how are we going to surgically remove it and become whole and healthy? You know, Professor, Blake, I would love to get your your view on that. The folks who are saying this is this is not who we are. You know, as as Ibram points out, it's it, you know, I, I just find it to be um, a sort of funny sort of thing because in the end, uh, anyone who studies American history understand that what took place at the Capitol uh, in January um, is very much part of a longer uh, history and, and a longer pattern. And, and you can draw those connections, I think, even in the recent past. You know, I, I've immediately thought about, uh, you, know, you know, Charlottesville, and, and I thought about the Unite to the Right rally. Uh, there's so many connections to be made uh, between that development uh, in 2017 and what took place at the Capitol. Uh, but as Ibram points out, we see a pattern of behavior historically that every time, uh, and I'll talk about it within the, the, you know, the vein of Black history, every time there's Black progress, uh, there is white backlash. So it's not a mystery as to why we went from, uh, you know, a Black president to um, a, a president who espouses, uh, you know, white nationalist ideas uh, and white supremacist ideas, uh, because we understand historically how the nation sort of responds to what is perceived as a threat uh, to the majority uh, every time people of color, uh, in particular, make some sort of step forward. 
there is going to be a violent response. And and so uh, January 6th was inevitable. Uh, we, we knew this just looking at four years of the Trump presidency, certainly. Uh, but, but we knew this also uh, looking at the broader history, as Ibram points out. I love how you said that January 6th was inevitable. What I did not, I should not have been surprised, but what did surprise me and make me gasp was the first the photo and then the video of the man, that man walking through the United States Capitol with a Confederate battle flag. And I'm just wondering how, as, as scholars and historians, how did that make you feel to see a, a, a symbol of, of sedition and, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The word that comes to mind is traitor. But what did it what did it say to you? How did it make you feel to see that symbol in the United States Capitol? Professor Kendi, you go first. So so when I think of the Confederacy, when I can when I see the Confederate flag, all I can see is is what Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederate States of America in 1862, what he said in what he called the corner, or what's been called the cornerstone speech, which essentially determined, really highlighted what this new nation, as they called themselves, was founded on. And in his speech, he said, Alexander Stevens, that, that this new confederacy will be based on the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man and that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. And so that's what I saw. You know, I saw racist ideas walking through the U.S. Capitol. I, I saw the permanence of the enslavement of me and my ancestors walking through the U.S. Capitol on that day. Professor Blaine, I mean, it's hard to believe that we have already almost gone 30 minutes and at the end of this. So I want to end with you and um, something you wrote in your, in your closing essay. You write, are we our ancestors' dreams? Are Black people in the United States now living the lives our ancestors of the past imagined for us? I am not sure. Tell us why you're not sure. Well, you know, as I wrote the conclusion, I wanted to both reflect on everything that Black people have accomplished in the United States. Uh, and of course, we were looking at 400 years. Uh, and I think it's important to acknowledge the gains, to acknowledge the triumphs. Uh, but what was clear to me was that we, despite all of our gains, are not in a place where we can truly say we have full freedom. Uh, and, and I imagine that my ancestors wanted full freedom for me, not half freedom, but full freedom. And what do I mean? Uh, the freedom to live my life out, uh, you know, as I desire, as I, uh, as I please, uh, the freedom to be able to walk the streets and, and not have someone look at me, make assumptions because of the color of my skin, not have an encounter with the police that could result uh, in the loss of my life, um, you know, for some assumption that, that that someone makes yeah. about me and i just thought about police violence i thought about you know covid-19 the way it, it, that it has been devastating black and brown communities i thought about so many challenges that we're still dealing with and i just had to say you know 
yes, we've accomplished many things. I've accomplished many things as an individual. I think collectively, Black people have accomplished a lot. But it's hard to say that we're living our best lives. And when you look at uh, educational inequality, when you look at you know incarceration rates, and, and, and the list goes on. So I thought it was important to remind people, yes, we've made progress. We can celebrate that, but we can't just celebrate. We actually have to continue doing the work because there's a lot of work left to do. Professor Kendi, I'll give you the last word. Are we our, our, our ancestors' dreams? I, I think we, we certainly don't live in a nation that, are, that our, our ancestors were, were dreaming about, but, but I would say that, that people like Professor Blaine, the, the 90 contributors in this text, uh, you, Jonathan, other uh, Americans, certainly Black Americans, who are who who are who are advocating for an equitable and, and and just nation? You know, a nation where we truly have a multicultural, multiracial democracy, where 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 everyone is valued equally, where everyone is treated as if they're worthy and humane. I I I don't. I think that our ancestors are happy that people are advocating and pushing for that type of nation. And, but certainly we, we haven't, as, as Professor Blaine stated, arrived yet. We are out of time, which um, is sad because there's so much more to talk about. Uh, Professor, Professor Keisha and Blaine, Professor Ibram X. Kendi, thank you very much um, for coming to Washington Post Live. Congratulations on this important book, this important anthology. Um, I'm going to figure out a way so that figure out a way we can we can talk again for for a little bit longer. Thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. And as always, thank you for tuning in. The next installment of our Race in America series is is going to be great. Join me on Tuesday uh, on Tuesday, February 1st. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got my I've got this all mixed up, but it's Feb actually it's February 17th, <laughs> Wednesday, February 17th at 1.30 p.m. Next Wednesday, February 17th, just to be clear, at 1.30 p.m. for my conversation with movie director Lee Daniels and singer and actress Andra Day about their new movie, The United States versus Billie Holiday, the incredible story of the FBI's effort to keep the jazz great from singing her signature song about lynching called Strange Fruit. You don't want to miss that again, February 17th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.